0: Hi. This is Andrew and this is Keen on The Daily Now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello everybody. It is all, uh it is uh, why why do I always think it's August? It's February the 19th, 2022. I'm uh, for people watching who are regular viewers of the show, they will note a different background. I'm not in San Francisco. I'm actually on Canal Street in Manhattan. So the show is on the road today. Uh, but while we're on the road, we're still talking about the same old subjects that we've been talking about uh, for the last couple of years. Um, earlier this week, I, I, I did a show with a, a New York-based writer called Amy Webb. And, um, she has a new book out called the genesis code which is about how synthetic biology our ability to write and rewrite codes to create life um, will change our lives that was the headline to put it mildly that's a euphemism and for those of you who saw the interview with Webb, i was struck with how ill-prepared we all are she wasn't very well prepared for understanding how uh, technologies like CRISPR will change the world, and she'd spent a couple of years writing a book, so most of us are, are particularly ill-prepared. We live in strange times, very profound change. I also had earlier this week Gal Backerman, uh, New York Times writer who has an interesting new book out about how social change happens. He believes that profound social change will come from internet and internet reorganization. Interestingly enough, he began his book with a quote um, from Neil Postman on technology. We certainly live in profoundly um, transformative times. Uh, The British based technologist Azim Azar um, has a new book out on the exponential gap he calls it uh, how uh, exponential digital technology is transforming everything and my guest today um, jamie suskin who a couple of years ago wrote a book called future politics living together in a world transformed by tech uh, also uses the word exponential uh, in his summary and i think in his introduction and he also said says that we're not ready for the profound change that technology is going to bring or is bringing and i'm thrilled that jamie is joining us from highbury in north london jamie uh exponential is that a useful word to make sense of future politics
1: it's a useful word to make sense of one part of what future politics is describing which is the change in digital technologies that's taking place all around us not all of them and not always perfectly exponential, but by and large the pattern is clear. And what I say in future politics, and I wasn't the first to say it, is that as human beings we interpret and experience the world in a linear fashion. But when things accelerate and speed up, uh, we sometimes find it hard to adapt to that pace of change. And that's really what the book is about. It's about whether we are ready, not just legally or politically, because we're not, but also intellectually and philosophically For the world that is coming into view around the corner
0: you begin the book uh and and i love this quote uh with a quote from tocqueville's democracy in america tocqueville of course um understood more than anyone at the beginning of the ninth or the first quarter or first half of the 19th century how profoundly transformative democracy would be came from the aristocracy of france came to america and saw a new world you you begin the uh, you, you you begin um, future politics with a quote, uh, not a digital republic. You you begin um, uh, future politics, Jamie, with a quote from uh, Tocqueville from Democracy in America. Uh, he wrote, "A new political science is needed for a world itself quite new." Um, is the world that you're writing about the world that we're actually broadcasting on? Is it? to borrow some language from Tocqueville quite new? Well,
1: let me put it this way. When I started researching and thinking about future politics, it was was from the perspective of of a student of political philosophy. And what it struck me is that the terms and references of political debate, the concepts and categories that we use to understand and analyze the world, these are themselves the products of times and places. They're not timeless, they're not eternal, they're not universal. Humans build them and they build them in particular times and places. And so it occurred to me that if you have profound technological change or social change or cultural change, then your political lexicon has to catch up. And Eric Hobsbawm wrote about this when he wrote about the 19th century and he does an amazing list in one of his books of all of the new words that were coined in such a short space of time, just so people could make sense uh, of the universe that that was emerging around them. And so I started Future Politics with the maybe slightly um, too eager view that almost all of the conceptual vocabulary that we'd inherited from the past was gonna turn out to be defunct. By the end of the book, uh, well, or rather by the end of the process by which I researched and thought about the book, I'd reached a slightly more nuanced view The book is structured around some of the big concepts we use in political theory, power, freedom, democracy, justice. And I don't think any of these words are going to be defunct in the future, but I do think they will carry new meanings, new meanings that come from different usages, but also from different values that people attach to them. Your idea of democracy in the future might be quite different from mine, both morally and conceptually. And so what I try to do in the book is, and it's a fool's game because there is no evidence from the future. But what I try to do is chart how our political thinking can, should, might evolve over time, in order just to give us the words to describe the future that we're building.
0: You mentioned, Jamie, uh, the great Eric Hobbs and not everyone, I I guess, would agree that he was great. Some people don't actually like him. Um, Certainly the greatest uh, British historian of the 20th century. His daughter is, a, is an old friend of mine. You, Your first book was Karl Marx and British Intellectuals in the 1930s. Uh, you wrote that about 10 years ago. Uh, Hobsbawm was the preeminent British intellectual of the 1930s. To what extent, and and, and, and I like that quote from, from Hobsbawm in your book, uh, to what extent Uh, Did Hobsbawm in the 30s reinvent the language, perhaps of the 19th century, the revolutionary uh, 19th century that Tocqueville was trying to make sense of?
1: Well, I'm a huge Hobsbawm fan. I mean, the book you embarrassed me with the the book that you've just um, that you've just brought up. I mean, I'm proud of it, obviously, but it is literally a book that almost no one has ever read. Uh, But it's it's a it's where those are the best
0: books, Jamie. When no one's read them, it (laughs) means you have something interesting to say. And certainly, the title is very interesting: Karl Marx and British Intellectuals in the nineteen thirties. I'm intrigued by it because one of my relatives, my grandfather's first cousin, was a man called Reuben Falber. He was um, the assistant general secretary of the British Communist Party. He was essentially Stalin's bag man. I'm not sure if he was an intellectual, so. Uh, there's a little bit of that in my family. So I'm particularly, I haven't actually read your uh, your uh, Karl Marx and the British Intellectuals of the 1930s. I, uh, I'd like to. But m- my point is more about language. Yes. Well, <laughs> what, 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 uh, people like Hobsbawm, who, who was not really an orthodox Marxist, but he nonetheless was reinventing, rethinking the language of the 19th century, wasn't he?
1: Yes. And obviously, you know, in the 30s, in the Ho- Hobsbawm sort of came of age in the 30s. I think he was probably a teenager or in his early 20s. And I he
0: came think, from Berlin, of course, with the experience, literally the physical experience of being hounded by the Nazis as a Jew.
1: Yes, he was. He was one of these great 20th century Jewish writers who sort of lived the world of political theory and history as well as commenting on it. Um, To me, the job of historians, I've always been interested in the history of concepts and the history of language. And my first book, Karl Marx and British intellectuals in the 1930s, is about how this reasonably unknown figure, Karl Marx, and his pretty unknown ideas, even among those who called themselves socialists and communists in the late 1920s, exploded in popularity in the 1930s in England among intellectuals who uh, were trying to translate his works, trying to quote his concepts, trying to imagine Marx himself as a particular kind of figure, a kind of grandfather figure, um, a benign figure. Uh, and, I, and in that book, I look at how the concepts that Marx brought into the world uh, began to find their way into the English language and the English lexicon
0: and the way we talk. And, and of think course it's worth thought. reminding ourselves and most of our audience hopefully won't need to be reminded of this but the 1930s was a profoundly turbulent time in certainly in european or global history massive unemployment of the rise of both fascism and communism and a technologies which were seeming to make us all redundant so in in an odd way the 2020s and the 1930s are actually not entirely dissimilar are they jamie
1: yeah i mean i think comparisons are, I mean, people have been saying that fascism is on the rise for years. And uh, I, I think that term is used too loosely. And obviously the, the kind of communist threat, um, the genuine communist, genuine communist ideas and communism, not what passes for communism in China these days, but genuine communism, you don't really find these days, whereas in the 1930s, uh, m- many intellectuals on the left were, were, were open to it and were, and were communism curious. Uh, even if they were not themselves members of the proletariat. In fact, it was often the, the intellectuals who were driving the communist discussion. But it was a period of profound change, economic change, uh, political change, and upheaval, cultural upheaval, not that dissimilar to now. I'm, I'm Just now I'm listening uh, on audiobook to Ross Douthat's book about um, cultural sclerosis and decadence, and he's made yeah. me ponder whether because he's he's very much a kind of anti-accelerationist. He he's very he says that the world that we live in now is actually much more similar to the world of 1990 than the world of 1990 was to the world of say 1960. Uh, and I'm not sure he's necessarily wrong about that at, at least in some respects. I think he underplays technology a little bit. Um so I I you know I love a historical comparison as much as anyone. I think the 30s were a time of almost unprecedented tumult in the sense that long-established regimes in Europe uh, (laughs) faced the threat of revolution, were violently invaded and deposed. Uh, It was an incredible time. Uh, England was one of the more peaceful places during that time, but still uh, exposed to it. And yes, a lot of the words and concepts that we use now to describe political upheaval uh, come from that period. Not necessarily sure that's a bad, uh, sorry, I'm not necessarily sure that's a good thing though, for the reasons I've given. I think sometimes when you try to slot new experiences into old categories, you end up being overly simplistic.
0: Yeah, and I think it's, it's one of the things that really occurred to me, actually, reading your book, is that I've done so many shows with progressives about the crisis of unemployment, of inequality, uh, and all the other issues that are upsetting, understandably upsetting progressives around the world, and almost all of them think nostalgically about the new deal. Almost all of them suggest, well, we can go back to the great society. And I'm mostly, of course, they're American, we can go back to the new deal. Um, and this, I find this very frustrating, because you can't, of course, anyone who's ever picked up a history book understands you can't go back. And nostalgia is another way of holding up your hands and actually saying, actually, I have no idea of how we go back. Tocqueville never idealized the 18th or 17th century even if he was very familiar with Montesquieu in his thinking and I, it seems to me and this is why your new book um, Future Politics and your upcoming book uh, The Digital Republic is interesting is that as a progressive you're trying to figure out a new language you're not going back to the karl marx uh, you're not going back to karl marx and british intellectuals in the 30s you're not going back to the new deal you understand that we need new language new concepts to deal with a new world is that fair
1: it is fair and i mean let me first of all take your thesis and then let me take your kind commentary on my work it is unquestionably the case isn't it that both the progressives in the U.S. like to harken back to the 60s and that and that famous era, as well as to the to the New Deal and the Roosevelt era, and they want to kind of recreate it. A similar nostalgia one finds here in the on the left for the reforming government of 1945 uh, of Clem Attlee after the war. And, you know, everyone wants to be or, or live through the next Attlee period. Of course, the right is exactly the same. You know, the... the uh, on the right, I'm the not UK. sure about
0: that. I mean, we'll talk about that later, but I, I'm not convinced. I think the right is always out thinking the left, but that's another issue. Go on. Well,
1: I don't necessarily disagree with that, but I think that a lot, a lot of language on the right is trying to harken back to the Reagan Revolution or to Margaret Thatcher in the UK. Either way, I, I would see across the political spectrum, and it's, it's perfectly understandable, but a lot of the time when we think about politics, we're actually thinking about the politics of the past and trying to apply it to today. And, you know, what I venture to suggest in future politics is that actually, if the great challenges that we face in the future aren't identical to the challenges that we faced in the past, then our political language might differ. And to put it boldly, I think the great political question of the 20th century was about the role of the state. Uh, To what extent should the state intervene in the market and in civil society? And I think that is the massive issue that divided left from right. I think at least one of the great political questions of our time will, will be to what extent should we live under the control uh, of digital technology and, and on what terms? And that is not a debate that easily fits into the lexicon of left to right. You can borrow terms, you can bastardize terms, but at some point you need to do some original thinking.
0: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think that's one of the valuable things about uh, this book, Future Politics, is you stress the fact that the old debate is not the new debate. The old debate was about the role of the state, which is why most progressives are still fighting the last war when they think they want to go back to the New Deal or to Clem Attlee. So the question is, what is the new war? What is the new world? What comes after this conversation about the role of the state in our lives? Jamie Susskind has Uh, thought this thing through perhaps as much as anyone and his 2020 book Future Politics tries to address it. Uh, Jamie we're going to take a a quick break and then I want to come back and talk about how you speculate the future what it might look like and what are the core uh, philosophical issues political philosophical issues that will that will inspire us and divide us so we'll take a quick break now 60 seconds break everyone and we'll be back with Jamie Suskin the author of future politics hi everyone Andrew here again I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this keenon show I certainly hope you're enjoying it but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my keenon show the first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple, or Spotify, or CastBox, or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub. Page um in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live. Uh, and you can do the same um if we're connected uh on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook, I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is and on their Lit Hub Live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keen We're back with Jamie Suskin, the author of Future Politics, who is talking about a new language to make sense of a new world. Jamie, before the break, you said that the, the old debate, the old issue in the 20th century was the one of the role of the state and how much that should be encouraged or limited um, in terms of industrial capitalism. 21st century, of course, we have a new world, Uh, the world, uh, particularly, I think, of digital technology. How would you describe this world and, and, and how do you imagine the debate changing? What do you think is the central issue or will be the central issue in the 21st century?
1: Well, first of all, let me stress, a lot of what I write about isn't about the world we already live in. Plenty of people do that. So what I try to do is project a number of kind of trends into the future and say, well, if even some of this was true, if even some of this was right, what would it mean for the way that we live together? And it seems to me that a number of interesting things are happening with digital technology. It's not just that tech is becoming more capable, able to perform tasks, which we previously thought only humans could do, and in fact, do them much better than us, but it's also becoming more pervasive integrated into the world around us, more sensitive, capable of uh, absorbing information, uh, both physical and datafied in ways the previous generations wouldn't have imagined. It's becoming more immersive with things like um, virtual reality and the
0: incipient metaverse. And if you combine all of these incipient, James, um, uh, Jamie, that might be a little optimistic. I mean, you're talking about what, 2050, 2070, when we we actually live in the metaverse?
1: Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I don't think you need to, I don't think we all would need to live in the metaverse for it to be a uh, substantial social development, just as we don't live in cyberspace. But obviously, the the arrival of the internet has quite profoundly changed the way that we live and work and socialize and do leisure and the like. Uh, But I take your point. I mean, the truth is I don't, some of these kind of technological predictions will happen much sooner than we expect. And some will happen much slower than we expect. And technological developments, which we can't even imagine will come along and surprise us. Uh, And we will find some things hard that we thought we'd find easy. And we'll find some things easy that we thought we'd find hard. I don't shrink from any of this stuff. Predicting the future is really, really difficult. But I think there, there are a number of broad trends of the kinds that I just identified. And I think if you project forward, you're living in quite a different world. I call it the digital life world, a world in which we are essentially surrounded by uh, and live our lives through and under the gaze of digital technologies. Uh, For some people, this will sound great. For some people, it, it won't sound great. But the central political thesis of my work is that technologies exert power. They are not kind of socially neutral instruments those who design and control an architect and engineer and own the most powerful technologies have power over the rest of us. That power takes a number of forms. I can I can break it down for you if, if, if you like, but it's, it's best summarized, I think, in a kind of triad. The first is the ability to write rules that the rest of us have to follow. So whenever you use a, a website or a piece of software, you have to follow the rules that are coded into that piece of technology. You have no choice. that's why early internet scholars said that code was like law. But of course, in the physical world too, if you imagine a self-driving car that just won't drive over the speed limit or won't park in a disabled spot, or or won't cut a corner, even if you need to get to hospital in an emergency, that's a world that we're increasingly moving into, a world where rules are written for us and embedded into technologies. The second way is by, gathering data about us, which technologies do all the time, and having data gathered about us can give power to other people for two reasons. Firstly, they can use that data to influence or even manipulate us. But secondly, sometimes knowing that data is being gathered about you makes you behave differently. So someone just saying I'm watching you will make you change your behavior, even if they don't tell you to change your behavior. And finally, digital technologies, Uh, have the the capacity for what I call perception control. We increasingly rely on them to filter our perception of the outside world, to tell us what's going on out there, whether it's in a news feed or a kind of AI personal assistant or an an algorithmic social media feed. Those who cure cure, or or indeed on social media generally, those who curate the world's information have a good deal of influence over what is up and what is down, what is seen as right and wrong, important or unimportant. True or false. And I say that the combination of all of these things makes digital technology an unusual and potent and pretty new form of power. I mean, it goes without
0: it's saying it 100 form, Jamie, if we could, But of course, we, we are just human and we're locked in our own language. Going back to your Karl Marx and British intellectuals in the 1930s, if we could bring some of them back to life, maybe Eric Hobsbawm, and he was around today, he might write a book with a title like. Um, surveillance capitalism in the age of digital technology, of course, uh, Shoshana Zuboff beat him to it. Do you think those kind of critiques, the Zuboff style critiques of what she calls surveillance capitalism, are they themselves archaic? Are they still uh, stuck in the 1930s in the thinking of Eric Hobsbawm?
1: I don't think so. I I think what Zuboff's idea of surveillance capitalism captures at a very high level, a very high level, is that technologies develop according to the social forms that are present when those technologies are born. And our kind of digital world just now is developing largely according to market principles. Uh, And that's in some ways a good thing because it Encourages explosive innovation and entrepreneurialism, and it's in some ways a bad thing because, for instance, a social media platform that is built on market principles isn't necessarily going to be a great forum for deliberation or democratic debate. So, I think the the, the kind of cap the kind of um, capitalist skeptical critique of technology is an important one, uh, and uh, perhaps. The community doesn't do enough to identify what the alternative to that might be. I agree with that. And that's where there needs to be some new thinking. And I think that, you know, Zuboff's work is quite close. And she was on the show, like, by the
0: way, and I actually blurbed the book. I mean, it's incredibly successful. But I think one of the reasons it's so successful is because it resonated with the New Deal crowd because it made sense in, in a language that, hasn't really been revolutionized yet, for better or worse. I mean, it's very hard to figure out the new language, as we all know.
1: Yes, and no. I mean, what I think you have to say about Shoshana Zuboff is that she coined a new term, surveillance capitalism, and it captures a really interesting and important phenomenon of our time. I think if you'd said to Eric Hobsbawm, surveillance capitalism in the 1960s, he would have replied, what do you mean? So I think well, actually, no, yeah. was- he
0: would have said, what do you mean? Because he wouldn't have been on Facebook or Twitter or or, or Google, but he would have understood the idea if you'd have explained it to him, that you have these huge multinational companies who control technology and use that technology to turn us into products Um, while we think we're getting something for free. So it's the old game of evil capitalist companies exploiting us and, and turning us into product. I mean, maybe it's slightly different from the industrial capitalism of the 1930s, but it isn't profoundly different. There are good. Well, capitalism areas. is
1: in the kind of the central economic precepts of capitalism aren't that different. I personally think that uh, the kind of extractive capitalism that Zuboff talks about is quite different from what was in the 1930s and very. Well, it's the
0: data. The, when you say extractive capitalism, you're talking about the capitalism of data, where we give Facebook our information ourselves, they turn it into money, and we aren't quite aware of it, and they end up watching us. That's what surveillance capitalism is. Yeah, I mean, actually, as it happens
1: <laughs> in economic terms, I don't really object to that. So there are people, for instance, who say uh, we should get paid for the data that we give. But that to me is nonsense. The actual commercial value of our data on its own is almost nothing. The value of data comes when it's combined with the data of millions other, of other people and processed by powerful machines. Which is what these commercial entities do. The problem with, to my mind, that that model of capitalism is, a, is not an economic one or a question of economic justice. It is a problem of surveillance. Uh, it is a problem of having yourself constantly seen and modeled and predicted. And that to me is a political rather than economic issue, uh, a point which I think is sometimes lost.
0: Surveillance is, of course, something that we're all very sensitive about back in 1985. Uh, uh, Neil Postman, who I mentioned earlier, uh, wrote a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death in which he said it back in 85 or 84 that we got the future wrong, we were all worrying about uh, Orwell's 1984, with its kind of surveillance, but actually, the New World was one of Brave New World, the dystopian warning from Aldous Huxley written in the 1930s, which some people suggest he actually stole the idea and the concept from Zamiatin's We, but that's another story. Is there a book, um, Jamie, that you think is, is prescient? Is Brave New World the most important book to make sense of the new world we're emerging into? The term, of course, has become... Uh, 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 as a quite a life of its own. Many people talk about Brave New World, not even knowing who who Huxley is. I think that book is probably more accurate in making sense of the digital world than 1984. I don't know what you think.
1: I agree. Uh, I mean, the future, as, as someone said, is not Big Brother. The future is lots of little brothers always there. Uh, lots and lots and lots of them privately owned. And one book, which I think captures it almost in a kind of um uh i mean it's in in it's, it's, it's in a caricatured way, but Neil Stevenson's snow Crash, where he imagines right. a digital future, but it's also a future that is
0: entirely conditioned by market individualism, yeah Stevenson was on the show uh Few months ago. And I, I'm not sure he's actually horrified by that world. But that's another question.
1: <laughs> no, maybe he isn't. I, I don't really know. But when I read Snow Crash, I thought that that is a good, that is a good piece of his of, of projection, because what he saw is easy to understand why people in the first half of the 20th century thought that the the biggest threat or really almost the only threat to human liberty was going to come from the state and they thought that despite, you know, what had happened in the progressive era in the United States with, you know, Teddy Roosevelt and the Trustbusters warning of the powers of excessive corporate concentration. But I think what we're living through just now is a world in which you have to beware power in all its forms, not just power in the traditional form of government control, but also the power that resides in digital technology. And that is uh, dispersed throughout society in a, in, in a more kind of unintuitive and often invisible way. And so I think that the the authors, Neil Stevenson, I think, is someone who probably got that a long time ago. He also coined the term metaverse, as your listeners will know. Um, So I find him to be prescient among the the futurist writers that I've read recently.
0: What about prescience when it comes to political philosophy? Uh, We had David Runciman, an old friend of mine on the show last year. He has an excellent online series on the history of political philosophy. And uh, he was talking to me about his own obsession with Hobbes. Hobbes will, of course, always remain relevant because the state isn't going away, whatever anybody says. I may be less important than it was. Uh, but the philosopher who I thought Runciman spoke most interestingly enough in his series was Hannah Arendt. And it seems to me, certainly Runciman's coverage of, of Arendt or his reading of Arendt, particularly the human condition with her focus on the future of work, uh, seem to be particularly prescient. Do you agree that Arendt is an interesting 21st century philosopher, which may account for why she's in vogue? Or are there other figures in the, in the canon who you think we need to read or reread?
1: Well, uh, starting with Runciman is good. He's one of the few political philosophers working in England just now who is really uh interested in digital technology as well and he's a good he's a good one at saying you know what would Hobbes have thought about x or what would rousseau have thought about x and i think that's always really valuable hannah Arendt, i've sort of wrestled with throughout my adult life there are times where i read her work when i put it down and i think that is so clever and so insightful i need to just take a moment to think about it and there are times where i read page and page pages and pages and i think this is obscurantist hyper intellectualized nonsense which is making something simple, in fact, rather complicated. Sometimes even, dare I say, a little pretentious too. Uh, is she important? Of course she is. But I think if we focus, and actually I wouldn't say that her, I mean, her work on the on the future of work is really important. Obviously the future of work is just one part of our future though. So, you know, Antonio Gramsci, what he said about hegemony and philosophers of ideas and how um, information and concepts disseminate in society they're very important these days and that's a facet of digital technology that i'm really interested in i think there's a lot of jurisprudential writing about what makes a legitimate law a legitimate rule whether it's lon fuller or um you know you know the heart herbert hart and uh, his whole generation of scholars who thought really deeply about what laws were and what made them legitimate i think those same kind of precepts can be interestingly applied to the rules that are made for digital technology, often by private actors rather than by the state. So there's an enormous amount of valuable stuff from the past. Uh, Future politics was my effort to mine some of it and show people that there was really great writing out there that could help them make sense of this world.
0: Um, You, in your acknowledgments, you really focus on your family, on your mother, and particularly on your father. You talk less about your brother, but your, your father who co-wrote a book with your brother, Richard Susskind and Daniel Susskind, The Future of the Professions. Very interesting and important book suggesting that the professions, the lawyers and the doctors and the engineers and the academics of the industrial 19th and 20th century are gonna be replaced perhaps in the digital age. Do you agree with their premise? Maybe I'm I'm exaggerating their, their belief in the end of the professions. And how important do you think if indeed they're right about the end of professions, how important is that in making sense of our future politics?
1: That's a great question. So firstly on my family, we have this slightly weird family business of writing about the future. Um, Weird, Jamie? my My dad has been doing it for decades. Uh, uh, Daniel and I are slightly later to the game.
0: And you didn't even um, rebel against him. You seem to love the guy. It must be something I haven't met. It must be something very nice. I have to have him on the I show. I do. I
1: love him. Too. I mean, he's an absolutely, he's the best, he's the best, best, best possible dad you could imagine. He's, he's my best friend. But I did, I did rebel a little bit in the sense that I didn't start kind of the, going into the family business until my mid twenties. So I, I had a few years where I wasn't, uh, where I wasn't in the family business. No, but the truth is, I'm very proud of him. I'm very proud of my brother and their body of work together. Dan has also written a book since *The Future of the Professions*, called *A World Without Work*, where he he takes some of the yeah. arguments and extends them a little further. Do I agree I with that? Basic-
0: Daisy? I bumped into your brother in Kazakhstan uh, as it happens <laughs> uh, a few months ago, before all the riots there. So, uh, as you say, he's taller than you.
1: He is taller than me and better looking.
0: Um, and I don't think he's better looking, but he's definitely taller.
1: Well, I'll take that from you, Andrew. Uh, thank you very much. Um, do I agree with their central thesis? Yes, I do. It's basically that if you parcel the world's work up into different tasks, increasingly systems are getting non-human systems are getting better at doing those tasks. Which means that if there is a finite body of work to be done, or or the automation of those tasks is faster than the growth of that body of work, then there will be less and less work for humans to do. And of course, what the what the future of the professions is interesting about is explaining that actually we're closer to automating the work done by high education human jobs like law and medicine than we are to things like uh, building or uh, being a makeup artist or a hairdresser, those the robotics involved in in those jobs were nowhere near. Um, And I think it's fairly profound. I mean, as it happens, one of the most important things about the professions I think is the concept of professionalism. And that's something that I would not want to see gone from human society. In fact, I want to see a kind of extension of it into the digital realm. That is to say, I think if you occupy an important and powerful role in society, like a lawyer or a doctor, if you run a social media platform, or if you write important algorithms that determine people's access to jobs, credit, housing, then you should be subject to oversight. You should be subject to ethical codes. You should be subject to sanctions if you fall below the standard expected of someone in your position. So I love the concept of professionalism. Uh, It just so happens that a lot of the professional work that we do just now, uh, I think in the medium term, might look very different.
0: Yeah, I think their thesis on the future of the professions uh is really important in terms of the future of democracy because that the the professional class was the heart of representative democracy and the ideal of representative democracy, their expertise. But that's perhaps uh a subject that we can take up later, Jamie. I'm curious, I'm not talking to you from Silicon Valley as I normally do, but I live out on the West Coast. What do you make of all the hype of Web3? We had um My old friend, Chris Schroeder on the show recently, influential investor, digital thinker. Um, He talks about, and in in some ways, I guess, not that different from you, the global unleashing. But rather than speaking about politics and philosophy, he's talking about crypto and Web3. Is it more Silicon Valley hype or is crypto and Web3 and blockchain? Are they profound changes, Jamie? I was about to call you Daniel, but you are Jamie. That's all right. Most people do. Uh,
1: (laughs) The answer to your question is, is, I think, a little bit of a mix of both. Is it right that the current hype around cryptocurrencies and NFTs and the like is incredibly economically frothy and volatile and in some cases outright fraudulent Of course it is. And if there is a bubble, I think it will burst. But that doesn't mean you should lose sight of the importance of cryptographic technologies like blockchain and the potential they offer. That said, I am a skeptic of the decentralization thesis which says that if you introduce a decentralizing technology, like for instance, blockchain, that it will get rid of powerful intermediaries. So you don't, you won't need banks anymore. And in the extreme version, you won't need governments, because people will be able to mediate between themselves using cryptographic technologies. I'm a skeptic of that for various reasons. First of all, I think it's kind of not morally neutral. I don't necessarily think that's a good world. Secondly, I think technologies are more shaped by the world that they're born into than that. So people thought that the internet, which was a decentralized technology, would decentralize the world, but it didn't. Actually, the internet became a series of walled gardens that were dominated by states and powerful corporations. The point being, the internet took on the shape of the world it was born into partly, as well as shaping that world. I think the same is going to be true of blockchain and crypto. I mean, it's no—it's no surprise to me that <laughs> that big banks are themselves offering cryptographic uh, or blockchain products to their clients, which was, of course, from a political perspective, the opposite of what was supposed to happen from the kind of Web three. It's only recently started being called that, but the, the kind of Web three um, folks. So. I, I, I may be a little touchy about this because I've just written a book, which is coming out soon, which I don't talk about Web3 very much in. A- and I mean, the Central
0: sort of the Republic on Freedom and Democracy in the 21st Century, which is a sort of in some ways a distilled and, 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 and um, shorter version of uh of your 2020 book future politics although it's got a lot of new stuff in of course yeah i mean the,
1: the new book is more prescriptive so so future politics was kind of diagnostic it was asking what's happening and the digital republic says what's happening and what should we do about it and
0: so yeah, this is doc- dr suskin
1: who's dr suskin oh yeah well quite yes exactly i mean
0: except <laughs> no medical doctor so you're yeah no exactly so yeah. A yeah. So, I was wondering if you yes Sorry, say that again. Well, uh, Jamie, we're gonna we're gonna get you back on the show in June when Digital Republic comes up, so you can yes, wear your, I'm your uniform then. Finally, or, or perhaps I got a couple more brief questions to ask. You've talking about new politics, new language, new way of thinking, but there are many old things that we seem imprisoned by. You're um, an activist. You're you know your history is in the british labor party uh you thank tony blair and gordon brown in the book they helped you with this uh and you're an age-old warrior i guess within the labor party um as a jew uh for labor's anti-semitism and uh, i saw a piece recently that's uh entitled by you i left labor over anti-semitism i mean i'm rejoining with a heavy heart i don't want to get into anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, but it seems as if the issue of ethnicity, which of course Hobsbawm wrote about in the 19th century, the issue of Jewish identity, of race in America, of new nationalisms of one kind or another, micronationalisms, are all the rage at the beginning of the 21st century in an age of digital technology. So what's happening, Jamie? Why are we going back to ethnicity? Is that again another form of nostalgia or or is there a a more concrete rational reason why we're falling back on tribal identities as digital technology does away with geography does away or at least threatens the physical so i agree
1: with you that race ethnicity identity are as important as ever The, the kind of in most countries, the sort of racialized view of the world, which, you know, Hobsbawm would have known about, which sorts humanity in a, into a kind of hierarchy of races, that's obviously not really in vogue anymore. Of course, you've still got your white supremacists in the States and, and their equivalents over here, but it remains, at least in Europe- Orban, well,
0: Trump, Bolsonaro, Putin- yeah, I mean, Putin I, I'm not again. sure. I, but, uh, that, that, that some of their politics is rooted in the idea of their yeah no of course it is
1: of course it is some of it I mean th- th- to everybody th- else. you've got to, you've got to tease out the differences the reason it's become so important now on the left is for a different reason it's because for decades people assumed that what justice meant was treating and seeing everyone the same and you've got that kind of boomer phrase that people often use which is oh, I'm colorblind There's a reaction against that on the left now, which says that actually true justice requires you to see and appreciate and understand the differences between people, to understand that when you are talking to a black person or a Jewish person or a woman or a gay person, that they are uh, in some ways um, the product of their identities and they have a social experience that is unique, uh, good in some ways, less privileged in others. That is the kind of left wing manifestation of the identity politics, which is pretty new and is a a backlash against uh, a decades old, as I say, more totalizing version of justice, which said that true justice is not seeing any differences between people. Uh, So. In the Labour Party, what I encountered was not the old kind of, oh, you know, Jews are inferior, kind of racism of the right. It it was a different kind. I mean, it's so complicated, but basically in the Labour Party, the problem was that a kind of visceral and often irrational hatred of Israel spread over into tropes about Jews. Israel being seen not as a kind of plucky state of ethnic Semites, but as a colonial white experiment. Jews being seen not as the recent victims of genocide, but as quite privileged. Uh, in fact, one one anti-Semite, one person said the Jews were the, the, the prime financiers of the slave trade, which was just is just a false historical claim. But that's the kind of thing that you would see on the fringe. And uh, so left wing, the kind of left wing manifestation of Judaism is partly based in identity politics partly based in old school left-wing anti-Semitism, which has existed for quite a while. You know, Jews control the banks, Jews control the the governments, Jews control the media. But uh, I I mean, I agree with your depressing premise, which is that, you know, this stuff hasn't gone away. Um, It's depressing up to a point. I I mean, I I like being able to talk about being Jewish and and having a Jewish identity. And I wouldn't want anyone with their own kind of identity to not feel that the, the, they could assert it proudly and even aggressively. The difficulty is when we start treating each other worse because of those identities.
0: We're talking with Jamie Suskin. He wrote Future Politics, uh, Living Together in a World Transformed by Tech in 2020. There's a new book coming out in June that I'm gonna to talk to him about on a future show, The Digital Republic on Freedom and Democracy in the 21st Century. Um, jamie is there a digital republic in the world today uh, i've written a lot about estonia i'm reading more and more about taiwan's digital democracy is there a country that is pioneering digital politics digital to tech uh digital democracy in the way in which america for tocqueville pioneered democracy in the 19th century
1: well This takes me back to the first question you asked in this interview about exponential change. And uh, I sometimes quote Henry Ford, not a great guy, I should add, but something he said about cars, which is he said, if if I'd asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. And I think a lot of the digital transformation we see around the world is faster horses transformation in the sense that it is using tech to do things that we already do but maybe a little bit more efficiently. Uh, You know, I was talking to to an intellectual in Greece the other day who was saying that they have a minister in charge of bringing government information online, something we've got- Not Yanis
0: Varoufakis, was it? He was on the show. It wasn't Yanis Varoufakis. It wasn't him. Uh, There are of course other Greek intellectuals in in addition to that.
1: There are. There are other ones, others indeed who I would be preferring to speak to as well. But uh, he, this guy was saying, you know, He was describing that's what's happening there. Actually, a lot of it's already happened in the UK. There's a lot of information about the government online. A lot of government services are accessed online. That's not really... And if you look at somewhere like Estonia, they've obviously been a, a pioneer of that kind of change. When I talk about a digital republic, I have to be fair and say that actually, I don't think it's possible to have a digital republic in the world just now because it's imagining a world of more pervasive more powerful technology so it is a forward-looking book uh, and it is it's imagining a country in which or a a polity in which the power of digital technology is principally harnessed uh, for the good of the community as determined through its democratic organs rather than just for kind of the private ends of those who happen to own and control it probably the best example of it in the world just now if, if i could find a kind of incipient version would be the EU. Because I think that the EU, for all its massive political problems, and they are massive, uh, is at least trying to govern technology in a way that is consistent not just with yeah. vast profit, which is great, but not 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 all you want from digital technology, but rather a, a kind of technology of the common good. And you can see bits of legislation coming through building on the gdpr and building on
0: yeah i mean that that's a fascinating observation that will be chilling i think to some people and it actually touches on what i think the biggest of all fears in the 21st century which is technocracy which is what exactly the eu for better or worse is Uh, it's probably a a subject jamie that we can talk about when we when you come back on the show in a few months to talk about the digital republic fascinating conversation very far-ranging, free-ranging. As I said, your book, uh, Future Politics, Living Together in a World Transformed by Tech came out a couple of years ago. It's still enormously relevant. Your new book, The Digital Republic, will come out in June. What else should people be reading? And don't fall back on uh, the future of the professions because we've already done that one. That's the family business. (laughs)
1: I'll tell you what I've been really enjoying recently. I've been getting into books about... The progressive Era uh, and mm. Teddy Roosevelt. I'm reading um, Sally Bedell Smith's book about Teddy Roosevelt uh, and William Taft, and I th- and I also enjoyed uh, Melvin Urofsky's biography of um, oh god, his name's escaped. You know who was the great Progressive jurist, the the, the Jewish Supreme Court Justice,
0: Brandeis.
1: Brandeis. <laughs> it's just completely escaped my mind i read that yeah, recently yeah, and really yeah. enjoyed it yeah to, to talk about historical parallels there's a lot there that's interesting um, and a lot we can learn from and also some some key differences so I'm, I'm going through a bit of a progressive era yeah. um well and i think, think
0: that, that is important because we're looking for language beyond that finally jamie suskin i'm doing this with all my recent guests to end who runs the world jamie suskin the author of future politics
1: I think in the future those who own and control the most powerful digital technologies be they states or corporations uh, will have power of a kind that we can scarcely imagine
0: today Schilling, brave new world jamie suskin author of future politics been a delight we'll talk again in the summer uh, about um about uh digital republic but for the moment, everyone who's interested in Suskin's work, go out and buy Future Politics, one of the best books on the future of politics around. Thank you so much, James. Thank you, Andrew. We'll talk again in the in the summer. Thank you again. Thank you.